Quick disclaimer, there's some stronger-than-usual violence this week. Please check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, there are three-ish stories from Korea about ghosts, goblins, and demons. We'll learn how you can win every chess game and free hotel rooms with only a little bit of intimidation and kidnapping, and how if your kid wants to study too much and be too good of a student, lock the doors. They're up to something. The creature this week is a cow with horns. Yeah, crazy stuff, and it definitely does not exist. This is Myths and Legends, episode 350, Ghosts and Goblins. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's stories are all about ghosts, goblins, and demons from Korean folklore, spanning the 15th to 17th century, and all taking place during the Joseon dynasty. The actual history doesn't matter too much, and hopefully you pick up on some of the nuances as we go. We'll jump into a couple of smart people taking a board game way, way too seriously. One day, Ha Sagong, a Taoist of high attainment, used to go out fishing, the literary man said as he studied the board. His opponent replied that he didn't understand how this related to the chess game they were playing and he was pretty sure he had heard this story before. The Taoist returned to his wife just covered in bird poop. He was miserable. The literary man made his move. The opponent looked at it and made his own move. He goes home and his wife says, while he's burdening her with a feces-encrusted wash, maybe catch a few pigeons if he didn't mind. That way they could eat something other than fish. The literary man made his move, and the turn went to his opponent. Anyway, Sagong thought about it, and yeah, some pigeons for dinner might be nice. He resolved to catch the first one that landed on him the following day, and really, to bag as many as possible. The next day, though, the literary man said, the next day the birds wouldn't come close to him. Every day after that, too, they could sense the intention of his heart. The literary man's opponent said, taking his rival's rook, the next day, the birds wouldn't come close to him. They never did. They could sense the intention in his heart. The literary man wasn't about to let a small thing like the ending being spoiled spoil his ending. There was a tinge to his voice, though, like it had soured a bit. Checkmate, the literary man said. His opponent nearly fell out of his chair. What the? Where did that night come from? <laughs> yeah. You gotta watch out for those, the literary man laughed. All right. Well, looked like his opponent was buying. The man studied the board. He could have sworn he took that piece early. He checked his own pieces, but it wasn't there. <laughs> Looks like you didn't check it early, the literary man shrugged. Like they agreed earlier, the opponent was buying drinks. Remember? Loser buys. I'm not buying you drinks. I don't know how you cheated. But you cheated, the opponent pointed as he stood. The literary man sighed. Look, his opponent should sit back down, concede defeat, and then go buy them some drinks. It was the right thing to do. Oh, 
Yeah, and what, you going to make me? The opponent laughed. <laughs> me? No, the literary man chuckled himself. There was a point to the story with the birds, though. You see, most people fear demons. So, like house cats, the demons flock to them because the demons know they're in control of the situation. The wise, though, they don't fear demons. They believe it is their calling to rid the world of monsters. So, like Sa Gong on the second day, they go hunting. The demons, though, they can sense their intentions and they flee them. What if there was someone, though, who was truly wise? What if that person kept a demon thinking that they were afraid up until the very last moment, until the demon didn't have any means of escape? You could kill a demon, the opponent whispered, looking left and right. The literary man sighed, so short-sighted. Any wise man could kill a demon. It wasn't about destruction. It was about control. The opponent's eyes widened as the skin on the sides of his neck compressed. The literary man gave a nod, and the opponent's head hit the chessboard, sending the pieces flying. What, what is this? What type of monster are you? The opponent cried. Another sigh preceded another slam of the opponent's head before the literary man named his terms. Say I won. What? The opponent's busted lips sprinkled blood onto the board. The literary man mouthed a, one more. Another hit. You won. Oh my gosh, you won the chess game. The literary man's demeanor changed, and the invisible string holding the opponent appeared to go slack when the man had to pick himself up off the ground. His head crested the table to the literary man smiling. Now, how about that drink? The archer nearby grimaced. A scholar was walking with a man who looked, well, the man looked tenderized. His face was inflating into a big swollen mass, and he did not look like he wanted to follow the literary man, but they were going into the bar together? The literary man felt like a character he would hear more about later, probably. The man was, well, he was giving his wife space. They, it had been difficult. They had been trying to conceive, and, well, they were still trying. Another month, another disappointment. It was enough pressure with them only able to see each other when he was home on leave. But each passing week only added to the weight of expectation until it became almost too much to bear. So, he walked. He would take long walks around Seoul. The city he was giving up his youth, and, it seemed his family, to defend. He made it to the Guanghui Moon, the water channel gate on the southwest part of the wall during the Joseon dynasty. So it was much, 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 much smaller than it is today. And the gate that allowed people into the city arriving from the southeast also allowed water out of the city via a channel with bars so people couldn't use it to sneak in. Also, so snakes couldn't use it to sneak in. Well, they could, just not impossibly massive snakes. Though, looking at the gate from the inside, the snake still chilled the archer. Its head made it through the gate, but it still persisted in trying to fit the rest of it through. The archer was all alone, 
The city bustled behind him. Chatter at the gate floated above him. Down by the channel, though, it was only him and the snake. The snake, with the determination of a demon to get in the city. There was no telling what it would do once inside. So the archer would do what he must now. He knocked an arrow and, looking the snake in the eyes a final time, let it fly, burying it deep in the monster's head. The archer, from the many men he had watched die in the same way, knew that it was instantaneous. The snake was dead. He waded into the channel when, after a minute or two, the snake didn't budge from the grate. He couldn't have it rotting in the stream and making the people who drew water outside the city sick on his account. So, taking a stick and bashing the snake a few times, the body floated loose, rolling among the rocks, before the channel joined with another, and the water carried the demon from view. The archer looped his bow back over his shoulder and breathed the cool, fresh air. He had done a good thing. She was pregnant. They were pregnant. It was happening. It was a few months after the walk when they could finally be certain, feeling the baby quickening. They had never made it this far. He hadn't dared to hope, but too much. But this time was different. This time felt right. He had been wary, but she felt good. The only thing that was different was him killing the snake a few weeks before they thought they knew. Maybe heaven was rewarding him for thinking to the people of the city. It had been such a small thing, but it had, apparently, made the difference. The pregnancy and birth were terrifying and wonderful in all the usual ways, and soon, the midwife placed the child in the archer's arms. And the baby bawled. She quickly took the son back, saying that the baby just had a long day, you know, being born and all. That he immediately fell asleep and stayed asleep in her arms was just a coincidence. It wasn't, of course. That much became clear in the following weeks, months, and years. The baby screamed when he was placed in his father's arms. The toddler shirked from the man, refusing to ever be left alone with him, and wailed with a scrambling panic if the situation ever conspired to make it a necessity. The child looked at his father with a deep, virulent hatred. At first, the archer tried to understand. He had no idea why his son didn't just not love him, but actively hated him. They tried to get the baby to acclimate to him. They tried to calm the toddler. They tried to reason with the child. Nothing. No clue as to what was wrong. No reason for the child to hate the father. Yet, he did. The father more out of pain than malice, eventually returned the boy's hatred. The hope of a family had died when the boy was born. They just hadn't known it yet. The archer spent longer and longer on campaign, and when he was in the city, stayed out at taverns rather than come home to all conversation stopping. There had been no more talk of kids. Secretly, the mother tried to imagine what could have happened, to make the boy hate his father so much. But without any clues, the darkness of that thought was too vertigo-inducing, too sickening to consider for too long. There were practical limitations. A couple needed to be together to have children. And 
both the archer and the mother were happier apart. But their separation wasn't perfect. The archer received a message on patrol at the wall that night. After work, he needed to come home and be with the child. The mother's parents had been in an accident. They were fine, but they needed her help. In this time, would people really be so precious about a child in early adolescence being home by himself? The archer scratched his head. The mother groaned. They talked about this. The anachronisms thing got tiring. It was fun for a couple of years in the beginning, but she needed more than that. He asked if this was a meta thing. Like, was she a stand-in for the audience? Archer, please, just watch our son for a few hours. This is so tiring, the mother said, and left the home. The archer looked at his son. You eat yet? The kid only glared. Whatever, you know where the rice and kimchi are. I'm going to bed. Don't wake me, the archer said, and laid down in the back room on his, sometimes, bed. The archer was tired, but he was also wary. When the boy was younger, the archer had noticed small things around the house. Knives propped up where they shouldn't be. Rocks balanced precariously. Water that tasted strangely sweet that left the archer vomiting for hours after only a sip. Wary though he was, he must have dozed off, if only for a moment, because he heard the door open and close quickly, quietly. The house was in shadows now, the archer noticed when he cracked an eyelid. Then, in the darkness, with eyes that seemed to glow, the archer saw the faintest outline of him, his son, there in his room, holding the knife. He blinked and made a show of groaning awake, and he gasped when the child closed the distance between the door and the bed without a noise. The boy was now standing over his father. The archer opened his eyes and looked at his son, thinking the child realizing he had been seen would cause him to hide the knife and himself. The archer was wrong. The hate in the child's eyes calcified, and he struck. The father rolled, and the knife sliced his clothes and nicked his side. Before he could catch the child's wrist, the boy was attacking again. In the hours that would follow, he would think back to that moment, to what he felt like he had to do, to the small club he kept by his bed, and the dull, wet thwack of the wood against the child's head. The knife skittered against the floor, and the son's body followed. The father's hand shook as he drew it back and dropped the club. He and his son had never gotten along. The unease both seemingly felt for the other had evolved to fear and, eventually, hatred. Still, what he saw on the floor was beyond his nightmares. His son was dead. The archer fled the house. We'll see the aftermath of the archer's actions, but that will be right after this. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, resolutions are a big deal every year. 
But in that, we often forget to celebrate the stuff we're doing right. Like cleaning out the basement a couple hours each week. Or having dinner together. These are strengths we're already doing, and finding strengths, that's a lot like therapy. There was a time I thought therapy was just, here's what's wrong, and here's what you're not doing, just go do it. But it's a lot more than that. It's having someone who knows what they're doing, helping me develop the tools I need to move in the direction I need to go. Could be confidence, perspective, stress management. I've benefited from therapy in all those areas throughout the years. If you find yourself even remotely thinking of starting therapy, BetterHelp is a convenient and flexible place to look. BetterHelp is 100% online, and it's there you can fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. Plus, switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. It's all about you, your progress, your fit. So celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit betterhelp.com myths to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot myths. It was nearly dawn when the mother returned to the house. It had been a long night with her own mother. Now she had come home to deal with the archer and her son. The boy and the man were too similar. Sometimes the archer acted like a child. Sometimes the child acted like someone wise beyond his years. It was challenging for everyone, most of all her, because she had to... She froze when she entered the room. The door in the back was left open, and... She inched closer, sensing the inevitable pull of the horror within, but being unable to extricate herself from it. She slid the door open the rest of the way and screamed. It was nightfall when the husband returned home. He had thought about fleeing the city, running away, but he still loved his wife. He thought of her mourning the child, burying him alone while he fled justice like a coward. He couldn't, so he returned. He found her in the corner, huddled, gripping her knees. She said, their son, he... The husband said he was sorry. He knew. He did it. She met his eyes. How could he? He said it just happened. Years of resentment boiled over in an instant. It was truly an accident. The wife was less horrified than confused. No, like, literally, how could he? How did he turn their son into a snake? A realization trickled down the archer's spine as he turned to look at the door. What? He found his arrows, kicked open the door, and drew back his bow the child that was never his nor his wife's. He could see that in how the snake had slithered from his son's skin. It might have been reborn out of hate and vengeance, but it still bore the scar from the last time the archer had killed it, a small hole on its snake forehead. The archer could see now. The snake had died, but in its hate, it had come back as his own child, its hunger for vengeance had preserved it beyond death. That hunger had enabled it to find its way to the archer's home, to destroy his family from within. The snake hissed, and the archer held the arrow, drawn back in his bow, but only for a moment. 
He relaxed the bow and took the arrow into his other hand. The archer sighed. I'll quote his speech directly, because frankly, I don't feel like I can do much better. You and I were originally not enemies. Therefore, I did wrong in shooting you as I did. But your intention to take revenge through becoming my son was a horrible deed. Such a thing as this is proof that my suspicions of you were right and just. In taking my son from me and causing this strife, you have already had your revenge and you have once more transmigrated into your original shape. Let us drop the past and be friends from now on. What do you say? The snake looked once more to the bow. The archer understood, set it down, and stepped away from it. The archer could not help but feel his heart beat faster and his palms become slick as the snake slithered up to him, but the creature bowed its head and kept slithering. It slithered out the door, and, in the night, made its way out of the city via the water gate, passing between the bars. It was young, again. It never returned to Seoul. Back in the house, the archer and his wife, barely able to understand what happened, took one another's hand. They were too old now to try for a child, but they had seen a future worse than they feared and they had a second chance. They accepted the life they had been granted, and lived happily in their old age. The literary man saw the man weeping as he rushed past the literary man and his two demons in the night. Hey, you need, like, help at all? Nope, just gonna keep going, okay. Good luck then in your silk shirt. It's like 40 degrees out here. He turned to the two demons under his control. First that big snake and now this. Weird night, huh? The demons, who had been pressed into lifelong service by the man, were not in a talkative mood. They never were. The night was about to get much weirder when the literary man chanced upon... a warband, maybe? A bunch of guys with bows and arrows and clubs surrounding a bunch of other people with gongs and drums... What's going on? The literary man asked to a litany of hisses and whispers. Oh, they were being quiet. Okay. The people pointed ahead. Up there. In that clearing. Demons. The literary man looked back over his shoulder. The demon on his left squinted at the clearing ahead and then nodded without a word. All right, stand down. No exercising needed today unless it's exercising because that's good for cardiovascular health. He looked at the crowd. No one? Really? Whatever. We got this, the literary man grinned, and then said, I, I got this. No, no invisible guys following me, that's for sure. The people were likely more than happy to have a literary man take on a grove full of demons and their human followers, so they just ignored the other parts of that. In the grove, the literary man emerged to a fire, and the demons languishing, being served by humans. They started and then realized that this human was accompanied by not one, but two demons. Hey, really fun, this thing you're doing here, the literary man called out. It was not that he disagreed with or cared, but, well, he couldn't have demons becoming a thing in the area. Especially not if his little secret was discovered. He only wished he had the time and patience to enslave them all. They, they looked to each other. 
what did that guy say? Out beyond the trees, the assembled exercisers, once again, like exorcist exercisers, this wasn't a spin class, heard screaming. And none of the screams were from the literary man. No demon was seen in that area after that night. Kidong had been 16 when he met Charan. They both were. He was the son of a governor with a wide open future. She was a dancing girl, daughter of a dancing girl. They both remembered the night they met. It was his birthday party, and she was the person chosen as his dancing partner. From that day forward, they'd never spent a day apart. But now, it was time to go. The governorship was extended for six years. And so now, they were nearly 22. Kidong's parents sat him down, saying that, look, Charan was nice and all, but it was time for him to get serious. If she were to come with them to Seoul, it would invite way too many questions. It would damage their reputation too much. The father was on the fast track to be prime minister. She could be a wife. She just couldn't be his first wife. Kidong laughed. Absolutely, totally agreed. The parents said, oh, okay. They were a little worried that this would be like a The Notebook situation, where he would be in love with her and it would mess up his whole life. The only The Notebooks I care about are my school The Notebooks, Kidong said. But no, when it comes to Chiron, when it's time to leave her, she'll be like a pair of worn shoes. Set aside. His parents looked at each other. Wow. Ice cold when it came to personal ambition. Setting aside love and friendship and deadening all his feelings, they were so proud. Kidong didn't talk to Chiran for the last week they were there in Pyongan, the province his father administered for the king. He didn't even say goodbye. He informed his parents that it would be too difficult for her. When they arrived at Seoul, he had one request. Asceticism. The city was too fun. How was he ever going to study for the examinations with all this crazy good time fun stuff going on? No, he needed to go up to the mountains, to a monastery. So that's just what happened. And two weeks later, he was dead. Honestly, he cracked faster than most. He was a soft kid. The monk laughed to the horrified parents during his visit to Seoul to update them on their son's progress. Mostly the fear of death keeps people from wandering off into the forest, but not him. He was whoop, gone after a week. The monk made a sweeping motion with his hand. Wait, so when you said you lost him, the dad asked, yanking the tea back from the monk. Oh, I literally meant that we don't know where he is, but he's pretty likely dead. Like almost 100%, or dying, 50-50 shot he was eaten by a tiger before the first night was out. If he was lucky, the monk took the tea bag from the governor. How is that lucky? Both parents barked. Oh, you want him falling into a ravine and starving to death or breaking his arm and it getting infected? He was wearing leather shoes and a silk shirt. Sorry, but your son is dead. You're a terrible monk, the parents shrieked. No, I'm a terrible daycare worker. I'm a great monk. That kid had no business being in the mountains, the monk said. Struggled to get his tea back, drained it, 
and left. Rude. They were rude. The parents, beside themselves with grief that their only son was gone, started planning the funeral. They buried his clothes in his place. It was all they had left of him. We'll pick up with a goblin attack, but that will, once again, be right after this. A couple months later, Charon's mother was being attacked by a goblin. At least, that's what she thought, as she was beating it with a stick. But this Dokebi wasn't putting up much of a fight. And he was saying weird things like, I'm not a Dokebi. I'm the former governor's son. Please stop beating me. That really hurts. After a few more hits, she decided to hear him out. And it turned out, yeah, he was Kidong, that guy her daughter had been in love with. He said that he had walked 500 Lee and he would walk 500 more just to be the man who walked a thousand. She swatted him again with a stick. No, stop that. He shielded his face and said he had to see her. He left the monastery with as many provisions as he could manage. He had trudged through forest and over mountains. He had to trade everything for warm clothes. They had talked about this before he left. But 124 miles through the forest was a long way to go. Charon's mother said it was impossible. Charon was still in the household of the governor, the new governor. It was nice that Kidong loved her, but he was, currently, worse off than they were. So, please go home. And that gave Kidong an idea. He would go home, back to the governor's palace. He would look for a job. So you're like the old governor's kid, right? The hiring manager looked at the guy who was clearly the kid they served day in and day out for nearly a decade until about three months ago? What? Kidong said. Nope. He was just a down-on-his-luck 23-year-old looking for work. Mm Hmm. Okay, the man said. Look, he didn't want to anger the wrong people, and if this was an undercover boss thing, he was down with that. The kid was absolutely hired. Can I work in the hill kiosk? Kidong asked. Yeah, whatever, grab a broom or anything, the manager said. He he didn't care, he didn't need this. Really, the only people who didn't recognize Kidong were the new governor and the members of his family. Everyone else gave him a wide berth, except for Charan, who pretended not to see him, but that day wept aloud. The governor's son, the new one, asked what was wrong. And she said that tomorrow was the anniversary of her father's death. She always offered a sacrifice to his spirit with her mother. The old family always let her return home by the hill road for the day. The governor's son said, well, he wouldn't be unkind. Yes, absolutely. She could leave today. Fancy seeing you here, Kidong grinned on the hill road. Chiron lit up and ran to Kidong. He made it. He said he understood her clever coded message just to him. So, you have supplies, she said. He 
asked, what? The supplies, so we can run away together. Charon grew a little nervous. He said, but what about her father's ceremony? Oh, also, he thought her dad died in the winter? It was like middle of summer. She said he did, and he was a jerk. They never did the sacrifices. So, wait, he had nothing? We don't need anything but our love, Kidong said. Besides, if he needed money, he just asked his parents, and they gave it to him. Chirong crossed her arms and nodded. Oh, yeah, Kidong said. He didn't have time to apologize, though. They had one night to put as much distance between themselves and the new governor, and supplies or no, they needed to get moving. Well, wife, wink, Kidong said, I got a job. She knew. She had been supporting them with her sewing in their rundown country shack for over a year and a half now, and had basically paid a farmer from the village to take him on, since he had zero practical skills and also pledged to replace anything he broke, which would be a lot. Still, it would help him feel better. She pitied him. For her to give up what she had hadn't been difficult. For him, he had left everything to be with her. He left his family, his name, and his future. He did have skills, just different ones. Skills that could help run a kingdom. Skills that were languishing here in obscurity. Charon spent an evening thinking. Then she had it. She sent out word that she and her husband were looking for books. It took a few weeks, but a peddler showed up in town with the books they needed. Charam got in a brief bidding war with a family that wanted to use them as wallpaper, really, according to the story, but she got them. She presented them to Kidong and told him to quit his job because they had other plans. Several months later, it was the day they announced the results of the grand examination. Those who passed would join the king's court. Kidong's parents, as part of the father's official duties as prime minister, were forced to attend, though they sat there in anguish. This was the examination Kidong had left to study for, the one that ultimately had killed him. And the first place award goes to, the king read, and his face lit up. Hey, his prime minister's son, Kidong. Congrats, he smiled at his servant. Kidong's father said there must have been some mistake, but Kidong walked up, not daring to meet his father's eye. He said he had a confession for his father and the king. Charon had told him to keep his mouth shut, telling the king and his parents how he forsook filial piety and left to be with the woman he loved was a bad idea, but thankfully... That was the first thing she was wrong about. The Prime Minister and the King were nothing if not impressed by the role Charon had played in all of it. They were impressed by her leadership, and her planning, her foresight, and her resolve. They did say, however, that one of the King's chief servants could not be married to a mere dancing girl. But they did not let that little mislead marinade for too long. 
before declaring that Charan was to be elevated to the position of noble. Kidong said that that was kind of classist, though, right? If there was anything he learned over the past three years that was people had all sorts of skills and a sharp elbow to his ribs and a hushed whisper for him to choose his battles emanated from his wife's mouth, Kidong became prime minister after his father, and he and Charan, his one and only wife, lived happily. man had stayed in Seoul longer than he probably should have. He was in town to see the outcome of the exams, and also didn't want to pay for an inn. People in the towns not too far outside the city were friendly, is what he thought, before the door was literally slammed in his face. What the heck? This was the fifth house that night. Then he looked up and, in the light of the lantern, saw the farmer's teenage daughter looking out at the stars. He had an idea. 40 minutes later, there was a roar and a scream that could be heard from the road outside of town where the literary man was huddled next to a small, smoky fire. Their rehearsals had shown that it would take about a minute for the demon to get there. He made it in 53 seconds. Stop right there, demon, the literary man pointed. Oh no, not the literary man. The man who is so learned and powerful that even demons fear him, and who has remained fit into his early forties, and whose salt and pepper hair actually make him more attractive. He would be a catch for any lucky woman. The demon really kind of phoned in his lines. While the literary man mouthed them imperceptibly. Put her down, the literary man commanded, chewing enough scenery for the both of them. Foiled again by your power, the demon said. Next time, the demon dropped the farmer's daughter and faded off into nothingness. They're always saying that, the literary man smiled. Here, let's get you home. The literary man did not marry the teenager. She didn't quite communicate just how much of a catch the demon said he was to her father, and also didn't want to marry him at all. Still, he had a free place to stay that night. And for many nights, because... When young women were abducted by demons, he always seemed to be curiously close by to save them. Weird. Anyway, the story says he died seven or eight years later, and he definitely wasn't killed by demons for enslaving them, and also his terrible, terrible scripts. This was kind of a fun exploration of ghosts and goblins. There were actual ghosts and goblins, but it was more fun to play with the idea. The other ghosts were the everyday things that haunt us, the dreams that go unfulfilled, the words that went unsaid, and the lives we have to leave behind when we make a choice, or when a choice is made for us. Some things are scarier and more life-changing than real ghosts and goblins could ever be. With the first story, I liked how the archer could have continued the cycle of violence, but showed that, sometimes, it takes real strength and courage and understanding to set aside your bow and seek peace. On the second story, I do like how neither one of the couple really ever considered leaving. This was the life they committed to no matter what, and if they could have everything and each other, well, that was fantastic, but they knew that other person would linger like a ghost if they ever let them go. The real takeaway here, though, is, of course, 
definitely try to enslave demons, especially if, like me, you're absolutely terrible at chess. You'll never lose again. Also, you won't have to pay for a hotel room, so that's a plus. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site and on Apple Podcasts. For less than the price of a manual on how to bomb-proof your horse, there are ad-free and bonus episodes available that are not an actual helpful manual on how to teach your horse to deal with the unexpected, while also somehow sounding like you're going to make your horse resistant to explosions, like it's Captain Marvel or something. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Kiting Voir from Cambodia and Vietnam, and it definitely does not exist. The Kiting Voir is a spotted cow-like creature with horns. I know, that's a step too far. A cow-like creature with horns. That's bull. Well, not actually, though, because a bull is a creature that exists, and this is not that creature because this creature does not exist. Called the snake-eating cow, the Katingvoir was first discovered from someone selling horns in a Cambodian market in 1996. And I joke, but this has been the subject of an unusual amount of scrutiny over the past three decades. I linked to the full text of a journal article describing the horns and the possibility of the creature that could be attached to them. Despite horned cows not really being rare at all and some herbivores eating occasional snakes, I linked to a photo of that in the show notes, the burden of proof is apparently very, very high for cryptids now, to the point that they've seemingly proven that the horns discovered in the 90s were manufactured. It's just kind of funny that some Roman writer in the 3rd century could, like, see a dolphin and assert that sticky, cannibalistic mermaids were stalking our oceans and everyone would just kind of go with it for a thousand years. But now someone shows up with some weird horns, and after decades of scientific scrutiny, we can finally assert that this, probably the most mundane, milk toast cryptid, does not exist. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.